Last week we started looking at the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. And we said 1 and 2 Kings actually belong together as one book. Together, Kings covers about 400 years of Israel's history. But it's not here just to teach us history. This book is here to teach us about God and to guide us as we seek to live for God today in our own particular situation. And we saw last time, this book opens with a crisis in the kingdom. For almost 40 years, King David has been Israel's political leader, Israel's military champion, and Israel's spiritual pace setter. He wasn't just a king and a warrior, he wrote most of the songs in Israel's hymn book. Many of the Psalms come from David. And through those Psalms, he taught Israel how to praise and how to pray. David seems to be irreplaceable. But as 1 Kings opens, David is old, he's cold, and he's tired. He seems to have forgotten God's promise of an eternal kingdom. Ruled by a king from David's line, a son of David. The last job David needs to do is put a successor in place before he dies. But instead, the beginning of Kings, we find David lying in his bed doing nothing. The future of his kingdom is in the balance. And in that situation, one of David's sons called Adonijah puts himself forward to be king. He's ambitious, he's very handsome. And the writer of Kings leaves us in no doubt he would be a disaster as king. But while Adonijah is gathering support from powerful people in Israel, people like Joab, the commander of the army, people like Abiathar, the priest, while Adonijah is busy inviting those powerful people to a feast to have himself declared as king, David is still lying in his bed, oblivious to it all. But we saw last week, Nathan the prophet is alert to what's going on. He is not falling for Adonijah the handsome. He knows that Solomon is God's choice for king. And Nathan does what he can to rouse David. Along with David's wife Bathsheba, Nathan reminds the king of his own promise to make Solomon king. He reminds David that he, as the king, has to be the one to unite Israel behind Solomon. Nathan and Bathsheba point out the urgency of the situation. Even as they're speaking, Adonijah is feasting with his supporters and he's been spoken about already as the king. That's how things ended last time. So the question today is, what will David do? Will he do anything at all? Or will he just roll over in his bed and go back to sleep? We're going to pick up at chapter 1, verse 28, and read through to chapter 2, verse 12. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 335. And in the larger print Bibles, 515. 1 Kings 1, verse 28. Then King David said, Call in Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. The king then took an oath. 
As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Then Bathsheba bowed down with her face to the ground, prostrating herself before the king, and said, May my Lord, King David, live forever. King David said, Call in Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah son of Jehoiada. When they came before the king, he said to them, Take your Lord's servants with you, and put Solomon, my son, on my own mule, and take him down to Gihon. There shall Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon! Then you are to go up with him, and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. Benaiah son of Jehoiada answered the king, Amen! May the Lord, the God of my Lord the king, so declare it. As the Lord was with my Lord the king, so may he be with Solomon, to make his throne even greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah son of Jehoiada, the Carathites and the Pelethites, went down and put Solomon on King David's mule, and they escorted him to Gihon. Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. Then they sounded the trumpet and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing pipes and rejoicing greatly, so that the ground shook with the sound. Adonijah, and all the guests who were with him heard it as they were finishing their feast. On hearing the sound of the trumpet, Joab asked, What's the meaning of all the noise in the city? Even as he was speaking, Jonathan, son of Abiathar the priest, arrived. Adonijah said, Come in. A worthy man like you must be bringing good news. Not at all, Jonathan answered. Our Lord King David has made Solomon king. The king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah son of Jehoiada, the Carathites and the Pelethites, and they have put him on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. From there they have gone up, cheering, and the city resounds with it. That's the noise you hear. Moreover, Solomon has taken his seat on the royal throne. Also, the royal officials have come to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make Solomon's name more famous than yours and his throne greater than yours. And the king bowed in worship in his bed and said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has allowed my eyes to see a successor on my throne today. At this, all Adonijah's guests rose in alarm and dispersed. But Adonijah, in fear of Solomon, went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then Solomon was told, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon, is clinging to the horns of the altar. He says, let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Solomon replied, if he shows himself to be worthy, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. But if evil is found in him, he will die. Then King Solomon sent men and they brought him down from the altar. And Adonijah came and bowed down to King Solomon. And Solomon said, go to your home. 
When the time grew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So, be strong. Act like a man. And observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him. And keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. And that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Now, you yourself know what Joab, son of Zeruiah, did to me. What he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if in battle. And with that blood, he stained the belt round his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom. But do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai of Gilead and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember, you have with you Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahaniah. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now, do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do to him. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. Then David rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. He had reigned for 40 years over Israel, seven years in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David and his rule was firmly established. This is God's word. And this passage is a lesson in caring about the kingdom. The prophet Nathan couldn't preserve the kingdom all by himself. But Nathan did what he could. He used his influence with David. And even David can't guarantee the security of the kingdom. But so long as David's alive, he can use what God has given him for the good of the kingdom. And at this point in his life, what David still has is authority and experience. He doesn't have physical strength anymore. That's gone. He isn't going to fight any more battles for Israel. But David has authority in the eyes of Israel. And he has 40 years of experience as Israel's king. And in the passage we just read, David puts all that authority and all that experience to work because he cares about the kingdom. First, he cares about the right leader for the kingdom. The David that we find in verse 28 and onwards is almost unrecognizable from the David we met last week. Nathan and Bathsheba have not only roused David from his bed, They've woken him up from his apathy. In verse 30 he says, I'll get get on top of this this very day. 
And David knows exactly what needs to be done. Look again at chapter 1, verse 32. Call in Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah son of Jehoiada. When they, come before, when they came before the king, he said to them, Take your Lord's servants with you, and put Solomon my son on my own mule, and take him down to Gihon. There shall Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon. Then you are to go up with him, and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. The first thing David says is that Solomon is to ride David's own mule. That's so everyone can see he has David's blessing. Presumably David is too physically weak to actually take any part in this himself. But everyone will know David has planned this. The king has given Solomon his own mule to ride on. And yet, there's something unusual about this. A mule is a kind of donkey. Mules are not impressive animals. They're normally used to lug baggage around. They're pack animals. They're not used to carry kings to their anointing ceremonies. And this detail stands out even more when we remember how Adonijah liked to get around. Chapter 1, verse 5 told us he always traveled in style. He traveled with chariots and horses, with 50 men to run ahead of him. Solomon will ride on a royal animal but a very humble, unimpressive royal animal. Is this sending any kind of signal about how God's king is supposed to rule? Humbly, not exalting himself, not lording it over his people. I think it does have that significance. The chariots and horses, remember, were there if David had wanted to use them. But David gives the order that Solomon will be carried to his throne on a donkey. And David's orders are carried out. Look down to verse 38. So, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah son of Jehoiada, the Carathites and the Pelethites went down and put Solomon on King David's mule. And they escorted him to Gihon. Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. Then they sounded the trumpet and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing pipes and rejoicing greatly, so that the ground shook with the sound. The anointing of oil symbolizes anointing with God's Holy Spirit. The king will rule in God's power and God's strength. That's the symbolism. And all this is done, notice, not at a private party with a few select friends, like Adonijah's attempt to become king. This takes place publicly in front of all the people, and notice all the people celebrate. So David's choice of Solomon is good news for many people. But it's not good news for everyone. Adonijah and his friends hear the noise and they wonder what it could mean. Now only a day ago, 
they seemed to be the ones who were in the know. David was the one who was out of touch. Nathan seemed to be the one backing the wrong man when he refused to join Adonijah and campaign for Solomon instead. But now, God's king has come and Adonijah's party is over. It turns out he was the one out of touch with reality. He was the one on the wrong side of history. His supporters scatter and he holds on to the altar. There's no temple yet in Jerusalem, but Adonijah hopes he'll be safe if he holds on to the altar of sacrifices. Look down to verse 51. Solomon was told, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon and is clinging to the horns of the altar. He says, let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Solomon replied, if he shows himself to be worthy, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. But if evil is found in him, he will die. Then King Solomon sent men and they brought him down from the altar and Adonijah came and bowed down to King Solomon. And Solomon said, go to your home. In the end, the man who put himself forward, literally the man who lifted himself up, has to bow low before the new king. And Solomon doesn't make any assumptions about his older brother. He doesn't assume Adonijah is faking submission and reverence here. Nor does Solomon assume this is genuine. What Solomon says is, we'll see. In verse 52, show himself worthy means show a genuinely changed character. Solomon is going to wait and see on Adonijah. We'll hear more about him next week. But for the moment, we can ask, what is the significance of all this for us? There are two aspects to it. First of all, remember that in the Old Testament, the anointed king of Israel was God's Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. None of the Old Testament kings of Israel were the Messiah, but they were called to rule as God's representative. They were to be living pictures of the true Messiah. God's perfect eternal king who would come eventually from David's line. And here at Solomon's coronation, we see him carried to his throne, not in glory, but in humility. Not on a war horse, but on a donkey. We see Solomon not putting himself forward, but being chosen and anointed by God. At Solomon's birth, God had announced that he loved him. And now it's God's power that will enable Solomon to rule. As humble as he looks riding on a donkey, Solomon has the power to make his people rejoice. And his enemies in the end have no option but to bow before him. In all of that, Solomon is picturing God's ultimate king. We read earlier in the service how a thousand years after this day, 
Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He came to his throne, not in power and glory, but in humility. In Jesus' case, after the donkey ride came death on a cross. He was executed as a criminal. There was no glory in Jesus' path to the throne. But having risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, the Bible assures us Jesus is on his throne. And there will be a day when every knee will bow before him. Some will bow with great joy because they love him. Others will bow unwillingly, but everyone will bow. As you and I read about Solomon and then about Jesus, we're being shown God doesn't make up his plans as he goes along. A thousand years before Jesus, God was using an imperfect king to foreshadow his perfect king. And so today, as we look at the rise of Solomon and the fall of Adonijah, let's get the right perspective on Jesus the king. He humbled himself for our good, all the way to dying in our place for our salvation. But as we look at his humility, we mustn't miss the rest of the story in Jesus' case. He has been raised to the highest place. One day those who worship him willingly will celebrate eternally. Those who look down on him and reject him as king, they will still have to face him as the king. The king who holds the keys of death and hell. Now is the time to take Jesus into account. Adonijah had refused to take Solomon seriously. He was so confident that he, Adonijah, would be king. And so Adonijah was taken by surprise when he had to meet Solomon the king. You and I mustn't make the same mistake. If we don't take Jesus seriously now, we will be caught out when we have to meet him. That's the first way this passage has significance for us. Solomon foreshadows Jesus. The second thing to notice here is related to David's involvement in all of this. Remember, David has taken action because he cares about the kingdom. He's concerned to have the right leader in place. And that should make us consider how much concern we have for the right leaders. And I'm not talking about leaders in parliament, but leaders in the church. Jesus is head of the church, but the New Testament also tells us local congregations need local leadership. Jesus, the great shepherd, works through under-shepherds. Those who are entrusted with day-to-day leadership. That is essentially what David's role was. And then Solomon's. Yes, they were to be advanced pictures of Jesus' rule, 
But there were also rulers on the ground under God's authority in their own time and place. And because David cared about the kingdom, he cared who would lead God's people after him. So what about us? As we think about the future of this fellowship, do we care enough to be praying about future leaders? Future elders, future deacons, future Sunday school teachers, and every other kind of leadership that's needed in a fellowship. If you're a church member, does it cross your mind that leadership is needed? Not just from two or three people, and not just this year, but in five years' time and ten years' time. Does the need for leadership in the church move you to pray and to look for the right leaders? Does it move you to want to be the right kind of leader? Whether or not you ever hold any official office in the church, do you aspire to set an example to those around you in your way of life and your service and your doctrine? Are you seeking to grow and develop in those ways? Are you praying that others around you will do the same? We must if we want the right leaders in the future. Wouldn't it be great if in the future we had so many potential elders and deacons and youth leaders and home group leaders that we had trouble choosing between them? We had trouble finding spots for them to be able to serve. David cared enough about the kingdom to want the right leader. But he also wanted to see that leader have the right priorities. We've already seen an indication of that with David's concern that the new king ride a mule rather than a powerful horse or a chariot. The king needed to rule with humility, not with arrogance, and David wanted to send that signal. But now as his final strength ebbs away from him, David very specifically teaches Solomon about the right kind of strength and the right kind of wisdom. He starts with the right kind of strength. Look down to chapter 2, verse 1. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. In other words, I'm going to die. So, be strong. Act like a man. Those words could be interpreted a few different ways. Everyone agrees leaders need to be strong, but what kind of strength? How should they show their strength? At the present time, Kim Jong-un of North Korea is attempting to show strong leadership. No doubt he thinks he's acting like a man. Genghis Khan could be described as a strong leader. So could Hitler and Stalin. So if we're going to talk about strong leadership, we need a definition of it. We need to know what kind of strength we're talking about. And David gives that definition in verse 3. 
Observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Verse 3 defines what David means by being strong and acting like a man. It means persevering in submitting our lives to God. It means committing and recommitting to live according to God's word. The right kind of strength is obedience to God. When a leader shows that kind of strength, they will lead well. Their leadership will be for the good of those they lead, and it will bring honor to God. It takes strength to put God's word first. Above personal ambition and pride and popularity. It takes strength to stick with God's word when it's out of fashion. When there's a personal price to pay for walking in the ways of the Lord. But this kind of strength has to be a priority among God's people. This is the only way for God's people to be led. If strong leadership means anything different from this, God's people end up being used and abused for the sake of the leader. And David then connects all of this to God's promise of an eternal kingdom. Look again, this time in the middle of verse 3. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. And that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Now David is referring back to the major promise God made to him in Second Samuel chapter 7. That's where it's recorded. But as God presented it there, the promise was an unconditional promise. Nothing is going to alter it. God will establish an eternal kingdom. But the implication here is individual kings and generations will suffer if they disobey. That's the implication. And the next 400 years of Israel's history are going to bear that out for us. The only kind of leadership that belongs in God's kingdom is leadership that is unfailingly strong in its obedience to God. That's the kind of leadership Israel needed. It's the kind of leadership Jesus displayed perfectly. Jesus was able to say truthfully, I always do what pleases my Father. That's the kind of leadership the church needs today. So as we pray for leaders and look for leaders, let's pray and look for those whose strength is in their obedience to God. Not in their own personality or charisma, not in their own big ideas, but in their commitment to what God has said in his word. Well, David now goes on to teach Solomon a second priority. And if David's words have been pretty straightforward up to this point, 
From here on, they cause us to raise an eyebrow. Maybe even two eyebrows. Look again at verses 5 to 9 of chapter 2. Now you yourself know what Joab son of Zeruiah did to me, what he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner son of Ner and Amasa son of Jether. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if in battle. And with that blood he stained the belt round his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom. But do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai of Gilead. And let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember, you have with you Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahanaim. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now, do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do to him. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. It's clear that in these words, David wants to teach Solomon about the right kind of wisdom. He mentions wisdom in verse 6 and again in verse 9. But is David himself being wise here? Or is he just being vindictive? Is he just seeking a chance to get some old scores settled. Well, to help, it, help us come at this the right way, I'll mention a, an incident that Dale Ralph Davies mentions in his commentary on First Kings. It's the curious case of police officer Reinhold. Police officer Reinhold's job was to prevent motorists from speeding. So he would sit in his patrol car at various different places. You know the way it works, the kind of spots that they choose. You don't see the police car until you're almost level with it. But if you're a local, eventually you get to know where the patrol cars might be, and so you know where to drive slowly. That was police officer Reinhold's job. But one day as he sat in his patrol car, Somebody smashed the car window and abducted Officer Reinhold. How could that happen? Well, it happened because police officer Reinhold was a mannequin. He was a dummy dressed up as a policeman and sat in a police car. But one day his minders left him for just a bit too long in the one place and the locals figured out his secret. As he tells that story, Dale Ralph Davies draws a conclusion from it, not just for police work, but for the kingdom of God. He says, ultimately, police work cannot be done passively. In other words, with dummies. It takes a proactive approach. The kingdom of God is like that. It will not be secure with merely passive attention. If Yahweh's kingdom, which in 1 Kings 2 is also Solomon's kingdom, is to be made secure, active and vigilant measures will have to be taken. No officer Reinhold technique will do. Active and vigilant measures have to be taken. 
And that includes action and vigilance against those who might tear the kingdom apart. God's king is to seek true peace in the kingdom. Not just the appearance of peace, but real, stable, and joyful peace. And if that true peace is to come about, there will have to be action and vigilance against those who would destroy peace. In these verses, David mentions three people by name. Joab, Barzillai, and Shimei. Barzillai is mentioned in the middle. Now he is a person who works for the good of the kingdom. He's shown that in the past. And David says, if you are wise, Solomon, you will have people like that at your table. You will elevate people like that in the kingdom. But the men mentioned either side of Barzillai are men with the potential to split the kingdom. The details that we need to know is that Israel at this point in time is one kingdom. There have been tensions over the years between the north and south, but David united Israel and he has kept it united during his reign. And here's the thing about Joab and Shimei. Both of these men are partisans. Their ultimate allegiance is not to Israel as a whole. It's to part of Israel. Joab is a partisan devoted to the southern part of Israel. And Shimei is passionately devoted to the north. Neither of these men will work for the peace of a united kingdom. They will work, if they're allowed, for the dominance of their patch in Israel. That means they will be a threat to peace in the kingdom. David has a history with both Joab and Shimei. You can read it in 2 Samuel. Joab is a killer with no scruples whatsoever about anything. In the past, he's been willing to assassinate leaders David has put in place. And Shimei, we know, is a shifty character. In the past, he opposed David very publicly. And then he repented when he was cornered. Now, rightly or wrongly, David has not taken any action against either Joab or Shimei. It seems he gave Shimei a chance to prove that his repentance was genuine, just like Solomon has done with Adonijah. But apparently, in the years since that, Shimei has shown his repentance was not genuine. As far as Joab goes, it's hard to know why David tolerated him for so long. But whether or not David was right to tolerate these two men, David knows that in the future, they will be enemies of peace in the kingdom. Solomon cannot afford to be passive. If he's going to seek true peace in the kingdom, then wisdom says... He's going to have to take action against enemies of the kingdom. So the right kind of wisdom seeks true peace. If Barzillai and all those who love the kingdom 
if those people are going to gather around the king's table in peace, if they're going to live their lives in security and joy, then those who would destroy peace and security and joy have to be dealt with. That's part of seeking true peace. Now again, we could argue about David's own lack of action in all this. If we're charitable, we might put it down to extreme patience or maybe lack of moral authority due to his sin with Bathsheba. So we could talk about David and what he did or didn't do, but the real issue here at this point in time is not whether David got it right in the past. The issue is what God's anointed king should do. And we can't get around the fact if there's ever going to be true peace, first there has to be use of the sword. So in the kingdom in Israel, if there's going to be joy around the table of the king, first there has to be action against the enemies of the king and his table. What does that mean today? Well, it doesn't involve swords. But it means that leaders in Christ's church must be willing to deal with unrepentant sinners for the sake of the rest of the fellowship. Just like a good shepherd deals with wolves for the sake of the sheep. If church leaders refuse to deal with wolves, they are giving the church up to chaos and harm. And they're not leading in the light of Jesus Christ's return. Because the New Testament tells us the king who came to his throne humbly, riding to the cross on a donkey, the same King Jesus will return in power and great glory. He will return to claim his people and deliver them from their enemies. He will do that by dealing finally and decisively with those enemies. Jesus' return is described in the book of Revelation. John writes, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. In the book of Revelation, the nations are those who oppose God's king and his kingdom. So it's Jesus who will bring full and perfect peace, not us. Jesus made it clear, his church is not to pick up the sword or the gun or the bomb. But biblical wisdom tells us We are not working for true peace if we tolerate anything and everything in the church. 
sometimes to protect the joy and fellowship of God's people, we need a willingness to confront and to deal with wolves. So let's pray for leaders in the church who are willing to do that hard work. Not eager to do it, not relishing doing it, but willing to do it all the same. And let's pray that all of us as a fellowship have this wisdom that we so desperately need to work for true peace because we care about God's kingdom. Let's ask God to help us. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to give us a love for your kingdom. We ask you to give us the right kind of wisdom, individually and as a fellowship, as a body of people. Give us the the wisdom to know how to deal with challenges and threats and dilemmas that come along. And would you give us the right kind of strength? Not strength that comes from personality, but from obedience to your word. Give us the desire to be that kind of people, that kind of fellowship. Men and women who are faithful servants as we wait for the return of our King, Jesus Christ. And maybe some of us today need to say for the first time, I bow the knee to Jesus the King. I need his forgiveness and mercy. I submit my life to him. I trust my future to him. I want to live a new life for him. Father, we thank you that for all those who will bow willingly to Jesus, there is forgiveness. There is a place at the king's table forever. Amen.